Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Hi, this is David Sachs with a special midweek podcast on love and raising up fallen love. If you'd like to be part of the Zoom talks that we've been doing, subscribe at Torah on iTunes.com. We'd love to make you a part of the Okay, community. I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're going to start in, you know, all of these, uh, all these Parshas leading up to, to Rosh Hashanah uh, are all about Rosh Hashanah. That's what our rabbis teach us. And, and so this one is, is particularly interesting. And, and I have uh, my own interpretation, actually, that I'd like to share with you. But one of my favorite sort of like understandings of, of, of the whole Torah is in, is in this passage. So, and it, it's pretty sort of fundamental in terms of what it says about um, our relationships with our, our relationship with God and, what it, and, and, and with ourself and with, um, with sort of the more sort of like problematic aspects of ourself and, and how to address those things. So, so this is Parsha's key tzetze, and it begins with, um, when you'll go out to war against your enemies and Hashem your God will deliver them into your hand and you'll capture its captivity um, and you'll see among them a, a, a beautiful woman and you desire her. And it says that you can take her to be a wife. And it says that you're going to bring her into the midst of your house. And then it says what to do under these circumstances. Um, Because the idea is that war um, is is a time of like, sort of like ultra super adrenaline rushes. And in the kind of like in that kind of maelstrom of just, you know, just, just, surviving and, and conquering and everything like that, your your desires basically have rulership over you. And you'll see like a beautiful woman. And it says that that in ancient times I read that that uh sort of like one of the one of the practices of of of, of women at that time was that they would wear beautiful clothing um when when the enemy was attacking and it was sort of like a a, a, a kind of like a self-preservation strategy that if they looked attractive, that maybe they'd be taken as a wife or as um, perhaps a, a captive, as opposed to being just murdered on the spot. So, so with that in mind, the the, the we're talking about the the Jewish soldier right now. His passions are overwhelming him. He sees one of these these women dressed in beautiful clothing. He takes her home to be his wife. But now the Torah is trying to uh, give us good advice. And it's sort of like trying to, to calm us down a little bit. Like we, you know, it's, it's I, 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 I was told one time, and I thought this was great advice, just in terms of our daily lives. By the way, I, I think I left out the headline here, <laughs> which is that this is not talking about war. This is talking about our battle with our own Yetzirahs. Okay, so just just in case, uh, just in case that wasn't obvious to you. Of course, the Torah is talking about uh, things on multiple levels, so this is actually talking about war at the same time. But um, the sort of the Rosh the Rosh Hashanah uh, connection to it is really um, dealing with how do we like life is a war basically, and we're on the battlefield all the time. Um, and and the enemy is the Eight Sahara. The enemy is our, our 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 worst instincts that are trying to grab hold of us. So with this in mind, it's it's very strange if you want to continue to read this understanding into the Torah, because the Torah is saying, okay, you're in battle with your Yet Sahara. Um, what are you going to do? Take her to be your wife. Wait a second. What does that mean? Bring her into your home. What does that mean? And now, and now it's talking about what you have to do over the next, say, month in order to establish sort of like a, a um, more real relationship, okay? And we're going to go back and review all of these things and sort of decode them, but, but let's, um, let's just read the simple lines right now. It says, when you take her into your house, shave her head. Okay, let her nails grow, 
remove the garments of her captivity from upon herself, meaning these sort of beautiful clothes, and have her sit in your house and let her weep for her father and her mother for a full month. And then it says, afterwards, you may come to her and live with her and she shall be a wife to you. Okay, so a lot to unpack here, a lot to unpack. So I want to I want to understand it or explain it in the in the in the following way. So so you've got two battles going on here that that the Torah is talking about. One is on the battlefield itself, and again we're talking about our war against the Yitzhahara. That's the the actual sort of outward battle. So meaning to say, what what would that mean in this context? That would mean that, let's say there's something that I'm doing that, that I shouldn't be doing, that I don't want to be doing, right? You know, Reb Shlomo said something so beautiful about the, the tshuva process, and especially he said in the context of Yom Kippur, that when we're atoning for various things that we've done, we never wanted to do them to begin with. It's not like we're so attached to them even. It's like, I, I never wanted to do this to begin with. So... But but nonetheless, I'm I'm sort of still in the middle of this this battle, this struggle, and and I am doing these things. Okay. Okay. So now we have to get deep, because maybe you would say, uh, you know, if you're doing these things and you don't want to be doing them anymore, stop doing them. <laughs> like that seems like. Hey, that's great advice. It's as simple as that. Just don't do it. So, um, and you know, the truth is, is that that actually is very good advice. But the Torah is talking about something deeper right now in the in the lines that I just read you. Because let's say that I stop doing whatever it is that 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 I shouldn't be doing, that I don't want to be doing to begin with. Aha! Uh-huh. But guess what? the desire to continue to do it is still there. Do do you hear that? Because now we're getting into the, now we're getting into the depths of it. Um I've stopped doing that thing, right? But I still want to do that thing. Ah, uh, okay. So so let's relate that back to the lines of the Torah. You go out to battle and Hashem delivers the enemy into your hand. That means you've conquered the enemy. But now what does the Torah says? You then bring it into your home. You see, the desire is coming into your heart. It's still into your heart. Do you hear it? And now we have a confusing thing. It says you can marry it. It can be a wife to you. Well, wait a second. If we're understanding it as internalizing this desire for this thing that I'm not supposed to do, um, why do I want to marry it? To to marry something uh, means to have a a basically an eternal relationship with it. Why do I want an eternal relationship with this negative desire? Okay, so it's a little bit perplexing. And the answer is, is that at the root of every one of our desires is a very holy positive trait. Even if it manifests itself in the present tense as something negative or something that we sort of like use as kind of fuel to to break all sorts of rules, all sorts of commandments, Right. Nonetheless, the root, root of every desire is very positive. So, so I'll give you a few classic examples. So the Torah said if someone has like a, a thirst for blood, right? Like they've got this murderous instinct in them, that they should become a moel. So this is like an ancient piece of Jewish wisdom. that if you want to see blood, become a moel, meaning you, you perform circumcisions, and 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 what you've done is you've taken that sort of like that desire and now you're using it for sanctification. Now you're using it to to do mitzvahs with. Okay, I'll give you another example. Um, 
taiva usually means like like a very like an overwhelming desire. Sometimes it's even translated as lust, right? But it's just something like just an overpowering desire. So uh, David Amelech, King David in the Psalms says, I have this taiva for you, God. In other words, he he elevated that incredibly passionate aspect about his personality and he channeled it into this unbelievable love affair with God. Um, so these are examples that show you that that Hashem doesn't give you anything uh, innately negative within yourself. But when we're first born, it manifests itself as, as negative things. But these things have to be rechanneled and, 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 and sort of like sublimated. They have, to be, they have to be elevated to be used for divine service. And that's a lot of what we're doing in this world, a lot of what we're doing in this life. You know, I've given you this example before, but, but, but I like it, um, which is the Ikea box. That I, I think we're all Ikea boxes. The, the world is an Ikea box. Like, what, what, what does that mean, right? So I, I think all of you know what Ikea is. It's like this furniture store, and they kind of give you, you know, good deals. And the reason why they give you good deals is because you have to assemble the furniture yourself. Like, you buy it in a box, you bring it home, and they give you these like little Allen wrenches and things like that. And then you, you've got a bookcase, right? Before it was just a box. Now it's a bookcase. You know, before it was a box. Now it's a sofa. You know, now it's a bed. Now it's a table. And, and the idea is, is that, you see, basically, we sometimes think of ourselves as, you know, like finished products. And then we've got our whole life just to ruin, just to ruin our lives, basically. I was so good. I was so cute when I was a baby, right? I was so free of whatever, wrongdoing. And now I'm just a mess, you know? My whole life has just started off with such promise, a clean slate, and it's just, it's just been downhill from there. You know, so many of us think of our lives like that. And I, I think it's a mistake. And I think it's completely incorrect. We have to understand that basically, when we're born, we're just this box, we're this box with lots of parts in it, lots of potential in it. And then over the course of our lives, through trial and error, we put it together. And so, so these desires, these overwhelming desires, these negative traits that we're born with, that's on purpose. That's on purpose. And a lot of life is about becoming sort of more in touch with who we are, what we are, what this world is, what our lives are for, what this world is for. And then slowly, slowly, we shape these desires and we elevate them and we bring them up. And so, so that's the idea. That's the idea. That's the process of first you conquer this thing in the field, meaning to say, and the Rambam suggests this strategy. You've got different strategies for doing tshuva, coming close, just fixing your life. One strategy is the cold turkey strategy. It's not, it's not for everyone. Not everyone can do it. But, but it's, you know, it was good enough for the Rambam. The Rambam said, okay, you want to stop doing something? Here's how you start. Stop doing it. <laughs> just stop. Let's start there. And then we'll figure out the internal aspect of it. Okay, so this is, this is like a very real technique, if you can do it, if you can do it. And you can try to stop, by the way, and if it happens again, and it likely will happen again, remember there's one of the great teachings from the Talmud is, all beginnings are difficult. And I heard a Rav say something that always stayed with me. Why does it say all beginnings in the plural are difficult? Right? It should say to begin something is difficult. And what he said was that anytime you want to launch a project, anyway, anytime you want to improve yourself in some area or, or start a business or whatever it is, you will probably fail multiple times. But if you stay at it, you'll succeed. So that's the idea of all beginnings are difficult. 
because to start something requires you to do it multiple times before you get it right. And it's certainly true if we want to try to change an ingrained attitude or habit uh, that we have in our life. You know, one of the just visuals that I like to think and, and, and just to visualize this, and I think this is especially true, not just with our actions, but with our thoughts, which are very difficult to reroute, is imagine just like a rushing river. And imagine that you want to redirect this rushing river. And so what you do is you stick a pole in the ground, right? And you think that the rushing river is going to hit the pole and bounce off it and go into this direction. You know what it's going to do? It's going to knock over the pole. That's, that's what it's going to do. You want to redirect your thoughts. Your thoughts are a rushing river with great strength. If you want to redirect the flow of them, that takes tremendous work. The reason why I'm saying that is because one of the reasons why we don't succeed is because so often we underestimate the level of difficulty of what we're trying to do. And then we either just give up or we come to the conclusion that it can't be done. Like, but both of those are untrue. Don't give up and it can be done, but you have to take your enemy seriously. And you have to understand the tremendous strength of it. So since we're talking about the Yetzirah, this negative inclination, let's see what the Talmud says about it. In Gomorrah Kedushin, it says that it's stronger than you. And remember, it's an angel. It's an angel that's stronger than you. And if it wasn't for the help of heaven, you'd never overcome it. So that's important to know because on the one hand, it's depressing because you go, wow, I'm up against such a fierce enemy. It's stronger than I am. How am I going to win? But you can win. You can win. But you have to take its level of strength seriously, right? Like you have to say to yourself, well, I've been working on this thing for so many years. But have you taken, have you taken it seriously enough? Have you realized that whatever effort that you've put into changing this behavior up until now is not enough effort? That you haven't assessed the level of strength of the enemy properly enough? Because until you do, you won't make any progress. Okay, so again, I want to get to the explanation of this next set of verses that we covered. So, so, so you have initial success. Like it says in the Torah, it starts off, Hashem will deliver the enemy into your hands. Meaning to say, your outward performance of this thing that you don't want to be doing anymore has been successful. Ah, but it's in my house. I've brought the beautiful captive woman, right? Meaning that this desire, thinking about it, still gives me a lot of pleasure. That, that, that's what it means. These thoughts of engaging with this activity still gives me a lot of pleasure. Okay, so now, now listen to this. It says, shave its head. Right? We're talking about the Yetzirah here. Shave its head. Let its nails grow. Remove its beautiful garments. Ah. So now, in this context, we can begin to understand what that means. You have to... So what does it mean that you, you shave its head, you, you let its nails grow, and that you, uh, you take off its beautiful clothes? So, so the idea is that there's something... Imagine, imagine my relationship. I have a, an addictive relationship with potato chips, right? Uh, so someone, a friend of mine, told me about something that, that's been very helpful to me, which is... There's something called the domino foods. So think of think of like when you line up dominoes. If you if you tip over one domino, like you know, depending on how many are there, like a hundred fall, you know, just from that that one. So there there's certain foods like like I think Lay's Lay's potato chips. Like the, the company itself that said it best. You, you can't eat just one. So if you know that in advance, you know that that first chip that you eat is basically 
the same as eating a bag or, or, or five or ten or a hundred of them. They're one and the same because they're all connected. So, so demystifying, that's, that's, what, um, that's what the Torah is talking about. That's what it means to shave the head, to let the nails grow, to take off the beautiful, colorful garments, um, is you, you uncover the fact that it's not just one, that you're entering into essentially an addictive relationship. And if you know that in advance, it makes it easier not to take that first one. Um, one of the great insights of, I think, Alcoholics Anonymous is that someone who <clears throat> has been in an abusive relationship with, say, alcohol or eating, drugs, gambling, um, narcotics, anything, anything, is after they stop, we're talking about a success story right now, and I always, I always admired this when I heard this, was was that a, a graduate, so to speak, of the, of the program, someone who, who, who has been able to overcome this, this addiction, never considers themselves cured. They, they consider themselves to be an alcoholic for the rest of their lives, even if they haven't had a drink in 1, 5, 10, 20, 30 years, because they know about this domino effect. They know that they are the type of a person that that there is really no difference between taking that first drink and whether it's going to be in days, weeks, or months, they're going to be in that everyday abusive, addictive relationship with that substance again. And they understand that they, 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 there is no such thing as taking it that one time. And when you realize that all of these behaviors that we're trying to avoid, we're trying to overcome, they all fall under the category of these domino effects, of this, of this sort of like grand potato chip complex, basically, where, where you know if you have one, you're having the bag. That's the demystification process. When you understand to, that, that to engage in the conversation or the activity at all is to fall into its lair, to fall into its trap. Um, and it goes back to the, the sort of like this, the, the, the classic phrasing of how the Yetzirah works with us. And, um, you know, this is so simple what I'm about to tell you, but it's just, it's just true. It's just endlessly true. And, and it goes like this. That the, the Yetzirah, it's like you're walking down the street and it's like someone who waves to you from, from the other side of the street. He waves to you, hey, hello, hi. And then you go, oh, and then it comes over to you and, 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 and you enter into a conversation with it. And then it comes into your house and then it becomes the master of your house. That's how it works. First, it waves from across the street. What, what, what is that wave from across the street? That's that first bite. That's that first drink. That's that engaging with the thought itself. When the thought comes into your mind, you engage the thought. Once you engage the thought, it's a very, very short path to it becoming the master of your house. So, so the schematic... The, 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 the battle plan, so to speak, of the Yetzirah has been laid out clearly before us. If you can resist, if you know what it is, if you've, if you've allowed it to, if you've stripped it of its beauty, and you understand that it's there essentially to kill you, to undermine you, and you don't enter into that initial conversation with it, with that thought, with that desire. You're just moving on, right? If you can do that, that's what the Torah is telling you to do. That's, that's what you do. That's what you do. And that's this idea of shaving its head and letting its nails grow and stripping it of its beautiful clothing, right? You've, you've stripped away the allure that this is a that this is a wonderful relationship, and it's it's sort of like um, you look at that bag of potato chips and it just has a skull and crossbones on it. You know from the outset what it is, and so you don't engage.
Now, the next part that the Torah is talking about, again, is endlessly deep. It's endlessly deep. It says, then you let the captive, this beautiful captive, or this perhaps this once beautiful captive now, right? Mourn and cry for its father and its mother. Okay? And um, for a month. So, So what does that mean? What does that mean? And this, I think, again, in terms of Torah psychology, is is just so revelatory, just just you know, so insightful, so brilliant. Um, what what this part is is that who is the Yitzhahara's father and mother? And you know what the answer is? It's you. It's me. We gave birth to it. You see, um, as it says in Pirkei Avos, when you do a positive action, you create something, you create a positive energy, right? Uh, you create a positive angel. What, what, what does angel mean? That's sort of a mystical term, but it's what it means is that the life force that you emit from doing that action has an integrity and a lasting effect in the world. And so we call it an angel, but it's this ball of energy that's that's left you, and and if you do it with all of your heart, it's bigger. If you do it reluctantly, it's smaller, but whatever it is. Now, if you do something negative, you create this negative thing. You can call it a demon, whatever it is, whatever language you want to use. But it's it's negativity that, that, that's been put out by, by us into the world that lasts, actually has... It has an enduring quality to it. Now, when we do tshuva, when we when we stop doing that activity, believe it or not, that life force that we put into the world dies. It goes away. the The negative goes away. The negative goes away. The the, the good always endures, but the, the it's no longer there in the world. So it's it heals the world. It it actually heals the world, and that's one of the most amazing teachings in the whole Talmud. It says when you do tshuva. When you try to, you know, fix yourself, improve yourself, you bring healing into the world. And one of the interpretations, I forgot which Rav said it, but it's in it's in the Art Scroll Talmud on this, in Mesechta Yuma, um, an unbelievable teaching. It says, there will be, I'm putting it into my own words, but this is what it says. What does it mean it brings healing into the world? A, a laboratory medical researcher because you did tshuva, will get an idea of how to cure a disease. Is that amazing? Is that amazing? That, in other words, it's taking this teaching very literally. It's saying it actually will inspire healing in the world such that a cure to a disease will be found. That is amazing. That is amazing. But we know that we ourselves are microcosms of the whole world, and that and that and that you know our inner world gets reflected out on the outer world. And so, if we're healing ourselves, why should I mean? Why is it so surprising? This teaching, I and mean, it's a wonderful teaching. It's mind blowing. But but it shouldn't actually be that surprising, because if we're miniatures of the world and we're healing ourselves, well, shouldn't that bring healing to the world? It should. So we have to understand that when we do an action, we give birth to this negativity or to, or to this positivity, right? But but we're talking about fixing things that are broken right now. So so that's why I'm dwelling on the negative example right now. Um, so it says that the this captive inside of us, right? Um, it has to mourn for its mother and its father. So again, we're the mother and the father. But what is this mourning process? And this is where I think it really gets deep. You see, why why do we do the things that we do that we no longer want to do? Well, that's you can write a whole library of books about it, right? It's not so simple. Everyone is complicated. Everyone has their own reasons, right? But when it comes to eating, I can tell you why I eat more than I should. Because it feels good. 
you know, people who drink and smoke and, and all the rest and engage in everything under the sun, why do you do it? I like it. <laughs> it feels really good. Okay, then all sorts of problems result. And there's shame cycles and, you know, sometimes people do it to punish themselves because they're trying to be self-destructive because they, they hate themselves for whatever reason. Okay, all of this is true. All of this is true. And I'm not dismissing any of it. But but the, why did you pick this one instead of that one? Well, a lot of times it's because cause I like it. And so there is this complicated pleasure relationship with the act itself. And if I'm not going to, if I've gotten myself to the place where I've exposed it, I've demystified it, I understand this domino effect, I see the skull and crossbones that are on it. Well, you know something, if I'm going to be real, I've got to mourn my relationship with it. In other words, it's hard to let go of. You know what? All right, yeah, I destroyed my life and I destroyed my family's life and everything like that. But you know what? Between you and me, there were some good times. You know, between you and me, there were a lot of good times. And I'm going to miss those times if I let go of this thing. And so that's the mourning process. The Torah says, you know something? This beautiful captive, demystify it, expose it for the fact that it's actually a negative force in your life. But then you've got to mourn your relationship with it because you know something, there were some good times in there and you've got to let go of them. You've got to go, well, ah, I'm going to miss that. But you know what? I know I'm saving my own life. I'm saving the world. I'm saving my family's life. I'm saving my children's life. It's worth it. I want to do this. But it's hard. Because unless a person is like really real with themselves, unless unless a person is willing, you see, if you say, okay, I'm not doing that anymore. Okay, good. That's good for the short term. But if you don't mourn it, I don't know how long you're going to be able to really keep it going in your life. That positive change. So the Torah says mourn it. So we're trying to figure out how once... We stop an activity, but after it enters into our heart, how is it that we're able to uproot it, right? So we talked about some of the steps, but I, w- I want to go deeper now. And and I want to point out something that that year really is the key. Year is the foundation for everything. Because year means awareness, awareness of the divine, awareness of your relationship with the divine. Um. The Baal Shem Tov says if you rearrange the Hebrew letters for the word Yira, that it actually spells the word to see, S-E-E. In other words, one's, one's awareness of God should be so palpable that they actually see God around them. Meaning to say God in, 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 in the things in their lives and animating the world and everything like that. Um, you can't see God. God is beyond, 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 beyond. But, but in other words, it's, 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 it's a visceral, it's a, it's a visceral relationship that, that one is involved in. And, and so you say, okay, great. So I'll just, I'll just have Yira. I'll just get into this visceral relationship, this emotional relationship with God. And that's, that's what it is. Okay. So, so the question is, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? And I have to read you something. Um, I've been wanting to share this with you for a while now. And it's just, it's awesome. It's awesome. You ready for this? This is from one of the Bali Musser, okay? One of the great students of Rav Israel Salanter, okay? And his name was Rav Yitzhak Blazer. And he was sort of affectionately known as Rav Itzla of Petersburg, okay? And in the Orius realm, I'm reading from this wonderful book, by the way, it's called A Letter for the Ages. 
and it's the uh, a letter that the Ramban uh, wrote to his sons, and it's um, just about advice of how to go through life. And Art Scroll has a version of it. It's 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 a wonderful, wonderful book, like one of these little you know treasure chests of of wisdom, and they give commentary on each of the lines that the the Ramban you know wrote over some. Uh, again, it's called A Letter for the Ages. Definitely recommend this. So, so Rav Yitzchak Blazer, uh, his commentary is brought here from, from the Or Yisrael, that's the name of the book. And I, I'm just going to read you this little section here because I, I, I really, really think it's an amazing insight. He says that by nature, human beings are easily frightened. Right? We're talking about yira now, remember, often translated as fear. Right? Wherever man turns, he finds himself surrounded by either real or imaginary danger. He is afraid of crime and of competition, afraid of the future and the unknown. He fears failure, sickness and poverty, pain and death. Indeed, the list, the list has almost no end. Thus, it's curious. If man is a being prone to fear, why does he not also live in awe and trepidation of the most powerful force in the world, God? Do you hear? Do you hear how amazing this is? He's saying, look at human beings. Human beings are afraid of absolutely everything. But the one thing that they should be afraid of, the greatest power in the entire world, they're not afraid of at all. How could it be? How could it be? And, and from this, you actually see something that, that I consider, or what he's saying, is, is absolutely supernatural. In other words, God removed from our hearts fear of him, as it says, by design. This was God's idea, by design. As it says famously, Kol Hashem. Everything is in the hands of heaven except the fear of God. Why? Because God gave that us, to us in order to cultivate within ourselves. And when, you, when he lays it out so clearly, we're afraid of everything. Can you imagine? It's like the most common fear in the world. Little children lie in their beds and there's a monster under the bed. <laughs> like, there's a monster in the closet. There's no such thing as monsters, right? But from like our earliest conscious like life, we're, there are monsters everywhere. It shows you how much we fear and yet simultaneously, we're not afraid of God. So here you see actually what the sages are saying. Everything is in the hands of heaven except this attribute. God took it out of our hearts because he wants us to cultivate it. He wants us to cultivate it. That consciousness that he fills the entire world that he's everywhere and in everything, and of course exists beyond, beyond, beyond the realms of this world. And why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? And I think one of the reasons is because, you know, someone told me, a beautiful guy, he grew up religious, and then kind of, I guess at a certain point, kind of left it, and his but he's, he stayed in touch. I, I really love this guy. He's a great guy. And he told me this story about himself. He said, he said that the big day was coming. He decided that he was going to eat at Pizza Hut, right? And, you know, this was it. This was his, his, his official throwing, throwing off of, you know, basically all these mitzvahs. And he told me, and he wasn't, he, he's actually an extremely funny guy, but he, he wasn't being comical when he told me this. He said when he took that first bite of pepperoni pizza or whatever he had, he genuinely thought lightning was going to strike him. 
And he was, and I've heard this story, different versions of that exact thing from different places, okay? And he was amazed when it didn't. And because that's not how God works. That's not how God works. And so all of us in our own lives, we do whatever we want to do. And we're amazed. We're amazed when there is an instant retribution. And then the lesson that we learn is that one of three lessons, God's not watching, God doesn't care, or there is no God. Now, with that in mind, I want to read you the following thing from Mishle. Okay, this is this is in uh, the chapter one, and it's uh, it's verse thirty-one. Okay, listen to this. It's talking about um, you know people who you know wrongdoers. So it's a, they will eat from the fruit of their way and be sated with their own schemes. But I was really intrigued by the phrasing of this. This is, of course, by Shlomo Melech, Mishle, often translated as uh, Proverbs. They will eat from the fruit of their way. So so I thought that was really, really intriguing. Why? Um, because I, I've planted a couple of trees in my life. Not much. I grew up on 79th and Broadway. <laughs> like, I'm, not, I'm not a farmer. But, um, you know, it takes a really long time for a tree to bear fruit. At least in my experience. Years. Let me, let me put it this way. Here's what doesn't happen. You plant a seed and then a tree pops out with fruit and you eat the fruit. That never happens. What I think Shlomo Amelech, King Solomon, the wisest of men, right, is telling us is that what does it mean that that the evildoer or whatever word they use in, in the Hebrew um, will, will eat from the tree, right? And I think what, it, what it's saying is that the, the timeline is much longer then we give it credit for. God is very patient, you know? It says that God waited 10 generations between Adam and Noah, just waiting for human beings to get their act together before the flood, to show to show his patience. 10 generations. And this was 10 generations of people living like crazy amounts of years. And God shows that same level of patience with us in our own lives. And sometimes, you know, it's like the Kutzka Rebbe says, God gave us this attribute of forgetfulness so that we'd forget about the world. He said, and we use it to forget about God. God gives us this divine patience where we do something wrong and he gives us time to fix it. And we interpret his patience as he doesn't watch, he doesn't care, or he doesn't exist at all. that funny slash tragic? And so all these things undermine our yira. And all these things make it very, very difficult for us to feel it in the moment. Because you know something? I'm, I'm sure you've all experienced this. Have you ever been on the phone with someone and you talk for a long, long time and they don't say anything? And then at a certain point you get very scared and you go, are you there? <laughs> I think everyone has experienced that. But I'm telling you, our lives are living testimony to that. It's like I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that and I still woke up and I have strength to do it again. God, are you there? And when we don't get any sort of response, we think, okay, I'm on my own. You know, one of the most beautiful things I ever saw was 
I was talking with this guy and um, his his young son, his young son uh, was, I don't know, maybe f- five years old or something like that. And he, he, uh, he used to like to, we were talking outside in their backyard and his son used to like to peel the paint off the, like the, the, the picnic table that they had in the backyard. Right. And so he walked by him and, uh, and, and his father says to the little boy, he says, okay, don't peel the paint. And we're like in this like serious conversation talking about this, that, and the other thing. And about five minutes later, the boy calls out his, his father had his back to him just because he was facing me. The little boy calls out, I'm peeling the paint. <laughs> why, why did he yell out that he's peeling the paint? Because he's not supposed to, and he was doing it, and he wants to be in a relationship with the one who cares, who told him not to do it. And when he was peeling the paint and he didn't get any response, he's calling out to his Father in heaven, be involved with my life, take notice. I'm not doing the right thing, but I don't want to do the wrong thing. And I care, and I want you to care too and be involved. But let me tell you something. God set up a world where it's not 100% like that. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. My next door neighbor told me, She said, you know something, you know, they've got those candies in the supermarket, in the bins. And she said, I always looked at people who would take a free candy. (laughs) Like they think that there's the bins, like, you know, one of the, like it's going into a doctor's office. There's a little dish of candies and, you know, I go to the doctor, I get a candy. That's, that's the way it is at a supermarket. It's not the way it is at a supermarket. (laughs) Those candies are for sale. They are not gifts to the customers. So she said to me, my whole life, I didn't, I didn't take a candy for free because I knew it was stealing. And one day I thought, you know what? I'm going to take a candy. She said, I took a candy and I chipped my tooth. And I said, God loves you, <laughs> you know? You know, there's such a thing as being a tzaddik. Reb Tzaddik HaKohen talks about this. That, you know, when we think about being a tzaddik, we, we, we tend to think about that, that if, you know, you're either a tzaddik, meaning that you're like holy and righteous in every aspect of your life, or you haven't quite attained this exalted status called tzaddik. Okay. But what he says is something very different. He says, based on a Gomorrah, that... Everyone's got different aspects of their life, and you can be a tzaddik, you can be a holy person in one mitzvah. In one mitzvah, you can achieve the level of tzaddik in, in the category of that mitzvah. Very interesting, you know? And it says that as someone rises up in the, the ranks of holiness, that actually God becomes stricter with them with that regard. And and. You know, when I first heard that, I thought, well, that's incredibly unfair. You know, the person's like holy and God is like, like they do one little thing wrong. But but someone gave me a visual that I, I thought was very, very helpful, which is if you've got like this white shirt and then you get like, you know, like a, a spot on it, like, you know, like, you know, some pizza sauce or whatever it is on it. It's really glaring. Like, you know, the eye just goes like right to that, you know. And that, that's how it is with a tzaddik. If a tzaddik has really, truly refined their, their behavior and become sort of white, so to speak, you know, like in that, in that area, you know, just no, no spots, no stains. A little stain really stands out. I said to her, look, you were so amazing. You never took a free candy. You never stole because for you it was stealing. And you never did it. And so you were really like a tzaddik. And so the first time that you did kind of fall short, there was an instant response to it. So, so we, do, we do have that relationship with, with God, that, that, that type of back and forth and 
heavenly response does exist. It does exist in, in some instances, right? But for most of us, for most of our lives, we don't get that immediate response. And what I'm trying to tell you is, this is coming from divine love and patience from God when we don't get that response. It's not coming from being ignored, God forbid. God is waiting for us to take our IKEA box and to put it all together and to just elevate all these all these desires within ourselves and to uncover them and to sort of be a step ahead and understand that, you know, if I do this behavior, it's going to lead to 10 more behaviors. The domino effect. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to fall for it. I'm not going to fall for it. I'm going to know that if one equals 10 or one equals 100, it's not worth it to do the one. And then when you demystify it, and then allow yourself to mourn over it. You know something? I used to love cake. Like there was no meal where I wouldn't have dessert afterwards, and that was the best part of it. I used to love it. Mourn for it. Allow yourself to mourn for it. Because if you don't, I mean, the Torah itself is telling you to mourn for it. Allow yourself to get over it. Allow yourself to to understand and experience and live this idea that all beginnings are difficult, that, that we'll fall and we'll fall again. But if we keep on rededicating ourselves, we'll succeed. Appreciate the strength of the enemy. Appreciate that it's stronger than you are. Because then if you understand that it, it's not going to it's not going to go away with a fly swatter, but it's actually going to take like, you know, it's going to take serious barriers and fortifications in order to fend this thing off. If you take the, if you take the opponent seriously or more seriously, you'll have a much greater chance of success. Um, okay. You know, we'll just, uh, we we'll just finish here and and just just know just know that um, the war is already won and now we just have to go out and win the war. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life and review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear him.